0: hi i'm alice living best-selling author personal trainer and host of give me strength where we discuss the positives of living a stronger life physically and mentally with the hope to inspire you to do the same welcome to give me strength Our guest today is Dr. Kiran, who is an experienced clinical psychologist with over 18 years of experience working in clinical mental health settings, including inpatient and outpatient clinical services. She undertook her clinical training in 2004 at the prestigious University of Oxford. She is an Associate Fellow of the British Psychological Society, a title given as recognition of several years' experience and contribution to the field of clinical psychology and has worked with both children and adults in the NHS, within private healthcare, with schools, with local authorities, and within the family courts. I'm so excited to have her here today to discuss this huge topic of anxiety, and specifically health anxiety. So Kieran, welcome.
1: Yes, it's so good to be here, and thank you for having me. And uh, what an introduction, I feel like. Is that is that me? Is that... Uh, am I those things? But I'm really excited to talk about health anxiety with you today, and and anything else anxiety related.
0: Yeah, and I think that you seem to have sort of found yourself as a kind of expert in that niche. Um, it, there doesn't seem to be many other people talking about it. And when I really thought of covering this topic, it was you that instantly came into my mind as someone that would be great to kind of uh, really rely on as an as an informative source and also a credible source of information in this space. How did you find your way to working on dealing with health anxiety, coming from such like a broad psychological background, what sort of helped you to kind of dial down to working on health anxiety specifically?
1: I've worked as a psychologist for 20 years and you're right, the, the breadth of experience that you um, get in the NHS is uh, so wide. And actually one of my first patients I ever saw as a trainee had health anxiety. So my first encounter uh, as a you know semi uh, Psychologist was with somebody with health anxiety. That wasn't really where what led me to where I am now. Uh, about a decade ago, I started to work in medical practice, um, so working alongside GPs um, in primary healthcare. And it was actually then that lots of patients would come for repeat uh, testing and examinations and. The GPs would just knock on my door and say, "I've, you know, I've got so-and-so here. They're really concerned about X and they've been back four times. So I think it's an anxiety issue. So because of the setting in which I worked, I ended up seeing so many people with health anxiety-based problems. And now, uh, you know, in the clinic, we also, you know, people can for second opinions or they want to pay for private diagnostic tests. So uh, the team where I work, we're really good at catching these people and, preventing them from going down a route that would actually make their anxiety worse um, and helping them recognise actually this is an emotional problem, not a physical one. So and I think the the work there has really led uh, kind of into the expertise, really, of having that.
0: Yeah, that's so interesting. And I guess we're speaking about health anxiety without maybe properly defining it. Do you have an official definition of what health anxiety is and how it manifests?
1: Yes. Yeah, so the official term actually been renamed in the recent diagnostic manuals. It's now known as illness anxiety disorder. Uh, I still call it health anxiety because that's what I've called it for so long. Uh, prior to that, it was known as hypochondriasis in the in the olden days. Um, It's, um, you know, really, the most basic way of looking at it is a person who is concerned with having or developing a physical health problem that could be fatal or serious and chronically disabling. And this is in the absence of any actual physical or medical markers for the existence of such a problem.
0: Yeah, that's so interesting. And I think that one of the things you referenced actually in your first answer about sort of stopping people from going down the route of of doing something that might make their anxiety worse. I think for full disclosure, I absolutely, and I've spoken about this online, I'm someone who would categorize myself as having varying degrees of health anxiety throughout my adult life. Um, and I think that it's something that I've had to work really hard in therapy on and, and still I'm challenged by. But I think that what I found really interesting was you talking about, and I know that there are people listening who will probably have similar feelings and relate to this in terms of when when a bout of health anxiety strikes, the number one thing you want is a definitive answer from a doctor who says, this is not wrong with you. Like, you're fine. I can have absolute mm-hmm. categorical proof that this is not wrong with you. But w- from what you're saying, you're sort of, I guess, listening to those people and and, I, and understanding them, but also saying, I think this might be a psychological issue. And I guess for me, it's it's about understanding how you tread that tricky path of of validating someone's feelings and validating mm. that someone has that sense of fear. And mm-hmm. it's incredibly real to them. I'm speaking from a personal perspective mm-hmm. that it's so visceral that you feel this is absolutely wrong with me to then be told mm-hmm. by someone, let's look at the angle of this maybe being something that's psychological. How do you find yourself treading that really tricky path with someone that
1: presents themselves to you it varies really from person to person and I think having uh so much experience now and seeing thousands of people you really get to know it so well and you know it's not that people are imagining their experience there's definitely something going on it's just the explanation for what's happening is not medical it's not you know it's not a cancer it's not a brain tumor and you know we always say If you've got new and concerning symptoms, they should be checked out. So it's not about dismissing and saying you you should never see a doctor ever again. And I'm lucky. I work in a context where I've got access to uh, GPs. So, you know, the person uh, has been, sometimes they're referred by a cardiologist or a gastroenterologist or whoever they've seen for multiple tests and say, actually, this person has been advised medically not to pursue any further tests. And I think that's quite difficult to do sometimes for, so I, you know, I have that assurance off the doctors it isn't. And then sometimes patients really struggle with that. Some can really uh, accept it. Sometimes uh, people might develop new symptoms. The answer to that sometimes is that, you know, we might say, okay, for the next two or three weeks, we'll work on the assumption that this is psychological and we'll do these things. And we'll see what happens to the symptoms. And often they disappear and go away. Or we'll do another test of three weeks of you um, assuming that it's physical and you keep telling yourself that that's what it is and that you are going to die and we'll see what happens. And you can contrast the two experiences. There's ways to get people to the point of being able to accept that this is an emotional and psychological problem. We can't do any work with the person until that acceptance is there. Mm. And I think another thing that really is instrumental is helping the person understand why they're having this experience. So the physical symptoms might be there because of stress or anxiety. It might be something that has been misinterpreted or messed about with, touched, checked so much that it's become uh, worse than it actually was to start with. But often, uh, you know, 99% of people that I see, there's a very logical explanation to why this person is so terrified of getting something that could kill them and that they could die or be chronically disabled because something has happened at some point in this person's life that attaches them to that vulnerability. So that's the the key really, finding that bit and doing work on that. Mm. That's where uh, I think the real validation happens when we can find that because it then makes sense all right this makes sense now to me Mm. this is why and this is why you know this week I've got cancer but next week I might have a brain tumor or next week it might be something else this is why because the illness becomes a bit meaningless after a while in people where it moves from one thing to the other because it's not to do with the content of the disease or the illness anymore it's to do with that person's sense of unsafety in their own body which has been brought about by something that's happened.
0: That's such an interesting point. And I think the sense of safety is such a huge one. And I think that, you know, my own experience, I know for a fact this is linked to like a childhood trauma kind of thing. And I think it's so hard it, it, when you're in a state of heightened anxiety to remind yourself that like that is, you know, nine times out of 10, that is the the trauma impacting you rather than this being a a, a real Um, thing. But I think that going back to the sense of safety, it's always that that people are looking for. They want complete safety in their bodies. And I think it's one of the hardest things to come by. It's one of the hardest things to try and find. And I'd love to hear about how you work with people to to help them find that sense of safety when everything inside of them is telling them that they are unsafe.
1: Mm -hmm. And I think that's about tolerance of uncertainty and Not knowing because you can't ever fully feel a hundred percent safe in your body at all times this is about needing control isn't it i need to know that i'm okay and i'm fully safe at all times it's absolutes and that's not how life is and that's not how your body works you know bodies are noisy they make noise and there's always stuff that we can get preoccupied with so really there it's about one understanding why is it so important to this patient to feel that sense of safety what has happened to this person for them to need that security something's happened to make them want that and need that so that's one thing the second thing is because of what's happened this person has developed an intolerance for not knowing and for uncertainty what can I do to help them build up the ability to tolerate, starting with micro amounts of uncertainty, and building up the ability to tolerate more and more distress and uncertainty, until they get to a place where it, you know it's not it's not huge, it's proportionate. Um, you know, uncertainty is unpleasant, but. The distress it causes shouldn't be so disabling that it's off the scale. We want that 10 out of 10 to come down.
0: And stepping back a bit from specific health anxiety and moving more to, I guess, generalised anxiety, which is something that I know you also cover. Do you feel like we've seen a rise in generalised anxiety disorder in people that are coming to you for help with that? And if yes, why do you think we're all becoming... Slightly more anxious.
1: I, I do feel like there is a rise. It's hard to say, isn't it, anecdotally, because that's what I do. So I see anxious people all the time. Um, but there is a rise. Um, I think um, the last figures I looked at, 284 million people um, are globally uh, affected by anxiety, and those are the people that we know about. I think pandemics, uh, social media, I think that we talk more about this stuff, uh, the accessibility of information and this becoming something that's more open now. I think this has helped people talk more, but I do think world events that have caused instability and anxiety, the climate at the moment in the UK with, with the financial and cost of living crisis, I think there's so many external factors that increase people's anxiety and stress it's no wonder and I think there's naturally alongside that being a natural move towards being more open about mental health problems
0: yeah and it's so interesting isn't it with anxiety it it almost became a bit of a kind of trend buzzwordy sort of thing you know everyone's saying like I've got anxiety and and the the seriousness, of, I guess, could could have been maybe diluted a little bit when actually for a lot of people that are living with this, and I know for myself, you know, I'll give an anecdote from, from my own experience. You know, I remember I had a bout of really bad health anxiety in November last year to the point that I literally couldn't leave the house, couldn't get out of bed, was spending most of my day crying, spent upwards of a thousand pounds on health testing that I didn't need to do that all came back negative because I was absolutely convinced that something was wrong with me and mm. without going into too much detail i think that i'm able to reflect on that now and be like you know i'm able to rationalize but i think for a lot of people this isn't a trend it's not something that they just say oh you know i've got anxiety it's real life debilitating stuff and i think that um it would be interesting to hear i guess i know that we can't sit here and do like a one to one psychology session or appointment but for those that are listening, you know, some some easy, you know, low-hanging fruit coping strategies that you tend to give people that, that might be able to help just even to take the edge mm-hmm. off with mm-hmm. things like that?
1: Yeah, there are lots of things, uh, you know, that people can do, uh, self-help things. Um, and it depends, doesn't it? If you're so dysregulated in that moment and so terrified and frightened, some of these things... Uh, uh, I feel useless and unhelpful, right? They don't really work. You can deep breathe all you like. You still think you're about to drop dead Mm. in the next um, days um, Mm. or weeks. And I think, you know, what can be helpful is for people to make a plan in advance. These are my patterns this is what normally triggers me. So these are my three triggers. It's something physical or hearing something on the news or, um, you know, my child being unwell. These generally tend to be, there's usually a pattern. When these triggers happen, this is where my thoughts go. You can write the thoughts down under each of the triggers. When those thoughts happen, these are the behaviors that I use to cope and deal with the distress that that thought it creates in me. Some of those behaviors will be helpful and soothing, and make the person be able to take control of their anxiety and just accept this is just the flow of how things happen. It doesn't mean that it's definitely correct that the thought is correct. This is that story on on repeat again. It's come again, and this is why. So understanding and then looking at which of those behaviors would it be easy to bring some shift in. So, you know, examples are checking behaviors, a common one that people do a lot. That, uh, you know, if, if I know that one of my behaviors is checking, can I, how can I, min- how can I draw a plan to minimize that or to say, okay, if I do, get triggered in this way and I think this and the way I cope with it is by checking. My checking can be 50 times a day until I'm covered in bruises. I'll try to stick to just three times a day. So we're not entering into the full spiral where you become engulfed with the anxiety and it just eats you up. So I think having a plan that follows a pattern because I would say most people's uh, health anxiety and generalized anxiety follows a particular pattern. Becoming familiar and developing a plan in advance of what you can do at each of those stages is helpful. Mm. It is really hard
0: when you're in that moment to not, downward spiral and I know that a lot of people that I speak to you know I remember I put that post out a while ago about health anxiety and the feedback that I got was was that a lot of people find that it's sort of one day you can be absolutely fine and the next you're in this complete downward spiral and it's almost like night and day going from Mm -hmm. uh, one state to another state and and just trying Mm to bring yourself back from that it can be impossible without any external help we'll be back after this Welcome back to Give Me Strength. When it comes to anxiety generally, I find that it's really interesting what leads us to to be triggered and I think that social media can play a huge part in that. And I sit here as someone who uses social media every day. I love it. I think it has so many benefits. But I do see that I can absolutely understand how it can play a role in in anxiety. And I think you mentioned something earlier about this kind of vast access to just so much information being one of the things that can be a blessing and a curse in some ways. I think that, you know, for example, I can scroll Instagram and learn about this condition, that condition, whatever. There's all sorts of things that we can be bombarded with. Um, do you find that there is, I guess, a way to be able to use social media I guess in a little bit of a healthier way if you're someone that has you know a tendency towards anxiety are there any things that Mm -hmm. you try and advise people to do I mean I'm always a realist in these situations so I understand that stopping using social media just isn't the option so I guess when it comes to finding realistic coping strategies are there any things that you find help people to drown out some of that noise when they're in a state of anxiety
1: yeah there is and I often tell my patients you've got to stop following these accounts you know i say what what do where do you go what do you look at you know some of them in forums about you know cancer or forums of uh, people that have been bereaved and uh, you know you've got to get out of these places because one of the things that will maintain your anxiety problem is you reinforcing beliefs that you are unsafe and bad things happen bad things do happen and we can't stop them from happening but the proportion to which your mind believes that when you're constantly looking at that kind of information becomes absolutely huge when in fact it's still it's still quite a small proportion, and it becomes harder to accept that yes that did happen but it's not happening to me because people think actually it's everywhere, it's happening to me. So, I do say to my patients, stop following who do you follow? You know, they follow an epidemiologist or uh, cancer survivor pages, and I say, You've just got to stop. You can still use social media, but your responsibility is to take care of your mental health. You've got to have some boundaries around some of the things that trigger you. And if that's one of the things, then consume, stop consuming health information online. If you've got concerns, it's better to go and see your doctor than look at this information.
0: Mm. And just one thing that cropped into my head then, which I I don't know, it's just a top level thought, but in some ways, it's almost a sense of self-harm that people bombard themselves with this this information. Do you know what I mean by that? In that mm-hmm. it's almost like you know that this is not going to be good for you by looking at it, but you're almost so drawn to it in a sense that, mm-hmm. you know, you have to read it and understand it, particularly when you're talking about sort of the forums and the pages that can, that can uh, discuss a lot of these topics. Um, it's almost... Even though you know it's going to be awful for you and a trigger for you, you you, you can't help yourself but do it. And I think that's such mm-hmm. an interesting psychology to understand. Yeah,
1: it is very interesting. I think that comes down to trauma, Alice, because people are imprinted upon by the experiences that have taken place in the past. And we, I say, you know, if we say that there is a blueprint for feeling unsafe, when your uh, mind picks upon that, that stuff, whether it's there, there's this powerful and unconscious pull towards the the thing um, that speaks to the thing that's imprinted on your mind. Um, you know, it's like the psychology, it's the psychology of familiarity and this is the blueprint for safety and danger and threat. And that stuff speaks to this. And this is really imprinted on me because of bad stuff that has happened to me. So that it's really powerful. The pull to go there is quite powerful um, for people. Um, even though, you know, it's 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 unhelpful and the recognizer is, it can be quite hard to break. And I think it's easy to say, oh just stop looking uh, some of my patients that really struggle with that we really try to uh, bring about a gradual reduction so they've got to learn to tolerate increasing amounts of uh, you know delaying their reaction to wanting to look so they build up the confidence to be able to have those boundaries because you get sucked in really easily
0: yeah definitely and I think that again it's something that I I really did feel that when when you're in a state of anxiety and you think something's wrong with you, almost the default mechanism is to read more about it, which almost makes it ten times worse. Um yeah. and you just sort of get sucked into such a hole of of um of like I said, just that downward spiral. I wanted to step back a little bit and maybe have a think about um your role on social media and how you found your role um delivering really helpful information on on this sort of stuff. And it's it, it's not just yourself. There seem to be a number of psychologists who are sort of cutting through and really having a, a really healthy presence online with helpful information um, that they're sharing to people, which which can really help people who, who can't access, you know, whatever it is, whether that's counseling, therapy, psychological services. Um, do you find that that's almost the reason why you've gone down that route? I guess we know the NHS is stressed. We know that a lot of people don't have the ability to access these resources. Did you really see that as your kind of calling to say, well, I can do this stuff in clinic, but also I can put across this stuff online, which is also going to help a whole group of people.
1: Yeah, it really was actually. And it started during the pandemic that um, I had a bit more time. I wasn't going physically into the clinic. Uh, we were all working from home and there was a bit more time to do some of this stuff. So it was my first uh, foray into that that world. Um, and, uh, you know, I was really taken aback by the response and I think you know 85% of people that suffer with um, an anxiety problem will never get help or access to help in their lives and I think You know, private therapy really is a luxury for people. Most people can't afford it, and most people don't meet the threshold for NHS help. Sometimes, or that they have to wait so long, and they're in such distress. They need help right now, and that really speaks to me. And I think uh, that's why I decided to go, uh, you know, to continue putting the time and effort into it that I do now. And
0: it's such a an amazing resource. And the the stuff you put out there is so helpful. And I think that even you know, I remember when I came across you myself. And I was at a point of really needing that support. You know, if you can access that via social media. You know, we've talked about the bad side of social media today, but there's also so many great sides. And I think one of those really is the ability to be able to find people like yourself who can help you in that moment of need completely free of charge um, and just to give you maybe that nugget of information that will really help you or, or watch a video that might just ease what you're feeling. Um, and it's been, yeah, it's been brilliant to see, to see that growth. I think... Um, coming back to health anxiety just maybe like a final closing thing um if someone is listening to this and they're they're really struggling with health anxiety they haven't maybe found their solution um what would you say is kind of the default pathway for them to seek help do you say go to the gp first Is it try and go down the psychological route first if they i guess if they're like me, they've probably done the GP stuff. So if they've done that and they've got the answers, where, where would you then send them and what would be that kind of blueprint of trying to get help?
1: Yeah, so that's really a good question. If you're dealing with health anxiety, there is a very specific types of treatment that help people. So, you know, CBT, HA, which is Cognitive Behavioural Therapy, which has been the HA bits health anxiety is adapted to be delivered for health anxiety. Standard CBT does not really help in the same way. The second thing that I would say is actually um, EMDR treatment, my greatest success with my patients that have got trauma histories, and that's the cause of their health anxiety, or that it relates in some way to feeling unsafe, uh, has been EMDR. And really, I've been uh, blown away by the um, impact and the change in people often within three or four sessions. And, you know, it sounds like the EMDR Association are paying me to, to say that they're really not that treatment is very difficult to get um, on the NHS because there's not that many people trained. There are people. uh, So it's worth speaking to your GP and asking if you can be referred for that. I think often people don't make the link between treatments like EMDR And health anxiety, because we're looking at treating symptoms that are present here and now. But if we look at why, what has happened to this person to make them have this experience, if it comes down to trauma, it won't get better until we process those traumas. And sometimes when you do that, that's it, that's all that a person needs so obviously your GP is a good port of call talking space uh, of the psychological therapy service within the NHS but I think again most patients tell me that their experience that was quite generalized because they're, they're uh, sometimes they're treatments that we call manualized treatments where they, f- they follow a very specific format they're not tailored to the individual but uh, you know sometimes also people have uh years of psychotherapy or, or non-specific therapeutic input that doesn't help with health anxiety there's no no evidence for it so Those are the two things, really, CBT-HA in combination with uh, EMDR. And can you just explain? So I've actually done EMDR uh,
0: with my therapist. Ah. And I wondered if you could maybe just explain a little bit about what it stands for and what it is. In, uh,
1: In a very basic, simple terms, EMDR takes the view that certain experiences that have been traumatic have caused memories to get stuck in inaccessible memory networks and because they are stuck in these places they can't be properly processed therefore they cause a lot of disturbance in the here and now so if something very traumatic has happened to me uh, at the time my brain won't process that when it's happening because it's overwhelmed with survival of that situation so that thing may you know float around somewhere causing difficulty when you do emdr you're using a, a bilateral stimulation usually eye movements they also might be other types of stimulation used um, to help process that stuck memory so you're finding the memory that's linked with the disturbance you process the memory using rapid eye movements which uh, reduces the distress it takes the heat and the emotional uh distress out of the experience so the memory stays intact but the distress and disturbance associated with it has gone and therefore it doesn't cause any further influence on here and now problems that might resonate with that experience of trauma.
0: And I think what's really interesting about it is um, for a lot of people they don't make the connection between the trauma that might have happened years and years and years ago and actually why their health anxiety or whatever anxiety they're experiencing is rearing its head now. And I think that's what I really found fascinating was to track back and say, well, there's clearly a connection between these two things. But in the moment you don't necessarily think that the two are related and it's and it's, you know, tricky to kind of think, well, why am I going back to deal with that stuff when that stuff's not really bothering me right now? It's the stuff that's right here. But I think trusting the process with these things is the most important thing, isn't it? And just to believe that, um, you know, seeing seeing if it works for you and just trusting that that journey is, is the most important thing. And actually, wasn't EMDR made famous by Prince Harry? I think he referenced it as being the thing that had helped him
1: he did yeah he did actually reference that he said i think well, he said it had helped him more than any, any the other therapy yeah had. and you know it is a really uh, a fascinating treatment and it's gold standard it's had uh, you know it's, it's outperformed cbt in a lot of um research studies um you know i've had patients that uh, you know been going to a and e you know 300 400 500 times a year um that have had you know two or three sessions of emdr they come back and i say right have you been to hospital in the last week i've not actually been for a month and you know this stuff just stops you're not telling people to do this or not do that you just do the treatment and off the go and then this stuff just starts to change um because the trauma has been processed even though it might feel like well you know when i was 18 and i had the panic attack and it made me feel unsafe and now i'm 45 i'm still uh, chasing diagnostic tests that actually when you process that um trauma that that thing is now gone and using EMDR you can trace back to find what the source of the uh, problem might be so I I think it is um, hard sometimes to make those connections but uh, that's the job of the EMDR practitioner to find and make them connections and support you through that process.
0: Definitely. Kieran, it's been so, so interesting to talk to you today about health anxiety. And I know that it's quite a complex topic and we can't go into too much detail, obviously, because um, it's not like a one-to-one session. But I do think that what we've covered today, I hope people will find really helpful. Are there any other resources that you would like to kind of put out in terms of stuff that people, like maybe there's books or websites or anything that people might find useful if they're in a bit of a tricky place
1: the books that there's not a lot of actual books that um i recommend because they all t- some of them take uh, you know within a- within some of the books there are things that are not evidence-based or that they're um they stray away from something or they completely dismiss and discount things that um, I think is unhelpful for uh, people to read and think, well, it's all to do, you know, my health anxiety is all to do with my mother or my father or or this or that. It's too, they're too simplistic sometimes. But there is a... Um, there is an NHS guide that I could send a link to you. Would that be best? Yeah,
0: maybe we could put that in the show notes.
1: Yeah, it's a specific one for health anxiety and it's been developed by psychologists. Um And uh, there's uh, also another website, CCI, which has a a self-help program that you can work through for free for for health anxiety. That's fantastic. So I'll send you the links to to both of those. That'd be brilliant. And we'll put
0: those into the show notes. Uh, Well, thank you so much. I really appreciate your time today. It's been great to connect with you. And like I said, I really hope that this uh, episode has been helpful for people. Um, and like I said, if, yeah, if anyone does need any other help, we'll put some stuff in the show notes. But also I'd really recommend going and checking out Dr. Kieran's Instagram, where she has so many helpful videos that I hope will help you if you're in a state of anxiety. Thank you so much, Kieran. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much for listening. I really hope you enjoyed that episode. I would love it if you could take some time to rate your view and follow the podcast, as it really helps others to find it. We have a new episode dropping each week, so this will also ensure you don't miss out. See you next time.
1: Insanity Group.